Everybody excited about the joyful book of Ecclesiastes today? Oh, yeah. I couldn't tell if that was sarcasm or genuine excitement. Am I on? Yeah, there it goes. All right. Well, grab your Bible, Ecclesiastes um, chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I suspect this is not one of the more frequented sections of your Bible. So if you find um, Psalms, go a little further, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. So you'll find that it's in there. It's also in your table of contents. If you haven't used that portion of your Bible in a while either, it works. And you can find Ecclesiastes and we can gather in the same location. So we have decided not to put the scripture on the screen. So you have to actually either use a printed copy um, if you want to be archaic like me, or you, you new age people, if you want to use a digital version, I'm condemning you a little bit, but yeah, there you go. Use your digital version. Not, maybe, no, not, well, just this much. Um, there's also new pew Bibles, and since we don't have pews, they're not in the pews back there, and a couple of giant print ones if you need that as well. But I want to encourage you to dive into the scripture um, yourself, your own copy specifically. So let's uh, get our minds back together as we get ready to study Ecclesiastes. We're going to make a, a quick work of this book. And of course, for us, quick may mean something different than other places. We're still going to go kind of slow. But quick for us, it won't be like a two-year venture through Matthew or something like that. It's going to be um, between now and the end of the year, we're going to work through Ecclesiastes. So let's all get back on the same page and let's see if we remember why the book is called Ecclesiastes. That word probably in most people's cases, that, that word does nothing for us. If I just went out on the street and said, Ecclesiastes, I would know if someone had religious background because the only people who would respond with anything intelligible, would be like, that's a book of the Bible. But we don't use this word. It means almost nothing to us. And we looked last week at that word ecclesia, the first part of the word ecclesia. That's actually the Greek word for church. And so it's kind of like Ecclesiastes, is it's coming from the Hebrew Kaheleth, and that just means the guy at the front of the room talking to the gathering. So in a church service, which person are we typically talking about? Me. There we go. So I'm, I'm the Ecclesiastes in this scenario, but it's, you get a gathering together, and a guy addresses the gathering. That's Ecclesiastes. So you, you have Ecclesiastes probably for the title, but then in chapter 1, it says the words of the Ecclesiastes, except you don't have Ecclesiastes there. If you look in your translation, you probably have a lot of different options. Mine says the preacher. Um, some translations, I think, even say the professor. The idea is the guy who's done the study, he's thought through the process, he's gathered everybody together, and now he's going to make his presentation. I think in our day and age, we might call this a TED Talk. Anybody do the TED Talks? Some of those are fascinating. Some of those are nuts. But either way, they're interesting. So this is Judaism's TED Talk. This is Judaism's, let's look at the world through a wisdom-oriented lens, but let's be real about it. Because you know how Christians can tend to be? They, they put gloss, uh, rosy-colored eyeglasses on everything. Like Even in the song we say, which is coming straight from Scripture. I'm not denying anything the song said. But you work everything for our good. That comes from... Um, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it's a very biblical principle, but then we, we don't properly apply it a lot of times. We mean things won't go wrong, whereas the Bible says when the things go wrong, that's still working towards good. Those aren't exactly the same statement, but we have this rosy-colored um, idea. We want to paint everything from a happy lens. Well, if you just live your life rightly, 
if you obey God, if you tithe to the church, if you, whatever your list is, you've got your list of basic commandments. You know, if you do those things, um, your life would be happy. Your life would be good. Nothing will go wrong if you do all of these things, except then you read something like the book of Job. We've been working through Job on Wednesday nights, and we see just how depressing at times that book can be because often we do everything right and nothing works out right. You ever had that day? It's like, no good deed, this day goes unpunished. Everything you do right, you know, you got up early so you could leave the house earlier, but what ended up happening? You left the house later. You know, it's one of those days, you know what I'm talking about. No matter what you do, it's like things don't work out. Now, that's a really simplistic way of thinking about it, but life is like this in general. You, you can live, you can eat healthy and still get sick. You can, you know, do good financial work and still go bankrupt. You can just, whatever your topic is. You can work this out and still die in a car accident when you leave. There's, we recognize, we walk around the world, we see that and that whole principle of do good, things work out good, doesn't hold up in reality. The book of Ecclesiastes is the reality check on wisdom literature. We read Proverbs, it's exciting. You train a child up in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Except, has anybody seen that not happen? Well, we see that happen time to time. We, there's a lot of things we can say, well, the Proverbs say, you know, if someone's skilled in their work, he won't stand before poor men, he'll stand before kings. But you ever see someone who's skilled in their work and still ends up in poverty anyway? And we recognize that there's these principles at play that, yeah, if you do well at something, you'll succeed. If you live wisely, you'll do better. But we also recognize that there's plenty of times where that's just not how it works. It's just, we can't always connect good ends to good practice. In fact, sometimes we see the opposite. Sometimes evil deeds are more likely to produce good ends than the righteous deeds are. So the book of Ecclesiastes comes in. Solomon, probably, the one speaking. It's kind of gather the people together. Bring your brains to the table. Let's have a reality check on what exactly wisdom is. Now, of course, if you were here last week, the basic word, we said this word a thousand times, is everything is what? Vanity. Vanity of vanities, a striving after the wind. Very depressing way to start out the book of Ecclesiastes. And fortunately, um, in chapter 2, unlike last week, we had to kind of fabricate the good news last week um, at the end. This time, there actually is some good news in the passage. So we're going to do all of chapter 2. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Let's pick up in verse 1, and we will move forward. So Solomon, probably the professor, the, the Ecclesiastes speaking, says, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. I mean, I don't know about you, but if you just stop with that verse, that sounds interesting. I'd like to take this test. You know, just see how much pleasure you can handle. I don't know where my limit is. Do you know where your limit is? All right, so that part sounds good, but very quickly, see where he goes. Behold, but behold, this also was vanity. So you know where he's going. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly. So note, he, he was going to get drunk with wine, but not so drunk that he didn't feel still like his heart was guiding him with wisdom. So he's trying to wisely, um, we would use a different word in our culture, we would say, you know, all good things with moderation. 
So he's saying, well, let me try these things with moderation. I'll drink wine with moderation. And really everything he's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do it, you know, with my heart still guiding me with wisdom. How to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So that's a common theme we're going to see in the book of Ecclesiastes is you're alive and you're going to die. So how can you enjoy life if you know that's coming? And no matter what you do, you're going to die. So the question he's asking is, how can we look at this? How can we think through this if we know that's where we're going? What can we do? How much pleasure? So it's kind of a very pragmatic approach to what is going to maximize my happiness in life. Well, so let's just talk about wine. Let's say wine makes you happy. Okay, well, if you drink nothing but wine by the gallons all day long, do you end up happy? No, if you know anything about that, no, of course not. That's going to ruin your life. That's, you're going to end up in a rehab program over that lifestyle. There's nothing happy about that. So you, you see this, well, let's do it in moderation then. What's the right amount of happiness? What's the right amount of pleasure? What's the right amount of, you know, we might call it hedonism. What's the right amount I can dive into with whatever it is, be it one, whatever your, your thing is, can I do just enough and have happiness, but then my heart still guide me with wisdom? Is that going to be my happy place? Well, let's keep going. That, that's the question he's asking. In verse 4, we're going to see for the next several verses, just things Solomon is doing to try to find that happy place in his life. And of course, he is the king of Jerusalem, so he's, he's got resources. He says, I, make, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards. For myself. So if you think about kings, and especially in the Old Testament era, but really even in modern day, anybody who's got the power is going to build things. This is, when we say someone was the great, like Herod the Great, we mean he was the great because he built stuff. That's what we're talking about. If you go look at the Temple Mount that he built, that's what the emphasis is on. He built great things. Babylon was great because it built great things. Um, Rome was great because it built great systems. And so he's doing all of this works. He's, he's pulling his resources together to, to build things that are useful and meaningful and delightful to look at. So both houses and vineyards, both of them, I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Now who's wanting to go to Solomon's palace? I mean, this is this sounding like a little sliver of paradise. I would love to see this. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees, about male and female slaves, and have slaves who were born in my house. Now, I know in our culture we can't use slave in any positive metaphor and get away with it, but it is here, okay? So let's just deal with that. Have you ever really kind of wanted a slave? I mean, at least a servant, or maybe to be more kosher, a paid, a paid maid, right? Whatever kosher way you want to think about that, especially when you're a young parent and you have little children. I'm, guys, we're out of the diaper stage. <sighs> praise the Lord, <laughs> you know, it's nice, but so many times it's like, oh, if we only had, you know, sometimes I read the Old Testament, I'm jealous of these folks that have the extra help, it's like, wow, they, they had servants, you know, even Sarah in her old age, she's got Hagar, she's got this little harem of women who, who do her bidding, I'm like, wow, that sounds so nice to have help, and people who, who can't tell you no or disagree with you, you know, they just have to do what you say, that sounds amazing, but he's, he's, he bought male slaves, female slaves, he's got both, he had slaves who were born in his house. So he's got a population of slaves. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks 
more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Now imagine in their context, this, this is money. This is where the, the livelihood is. He's got wealth, not just in you know, gold and things like that, but actual herds and flocks. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings and princes. I got singers, both men and women. Now, we kind of have a modern version of this. You know, we have you know, iTunes and things like that. We, we have music played all the time. But I've always been like, I could live life with my personal cellist following me around. You know, like, I always want life to be a musical. You ever watch a musical, like, a song does not belong here? You ever feel like that? I don't. That happens in a musical. I'm like, this is totally appropriate. This is how life should be. We should just go around in some way. We all know the same song, and we know the parts to the song, and we just sing it. So if I was a great king like Solomon, I would have a personal cellist following me. Or maybe a fiddle. I could take a fiddle, too. Banjo, even. I'd be cool with that. Just this music in the background um, this is amazing. We, we had a, um, a, uh, not a, a harp for our wedding. That was amazing. I just love good music. So I totally get what Solomon is saying. Can you imagine how nice life would be? You just had, if you were sad, the song would go sad. If you were happy, the song would go upbeat. I mean, it would really just amplify your experience. I mean, in a very real way, though, this is what King Solomon is enjoying. Um, you remember with um, Saul and David, when King Saul would get sad, why did he send for David? Because David could come play a song, kind of pick him up out of his mood. Live music, live entertainment. He's got it at his whim. He can get what he wants. This sounds, I mean, it's a kind of nice life. I don't know if you think about it this way, but what Solomon's describing here does sound kind of nice. So he's gathered the singers, both men and women, many concubines. We won't have to get into that. Um, the delight of children and man. So even from an American perspective today, Secular perspective especially, Solomon's, he's got it pretty good. I mean, this is ideal dream world for a lot of people. Whatever category you want to find, Solomon is like, I'm going to see how much of it, I'm going to test my heart. How much pleasure can I take? Where's the, where's, where should I dial this in? Not too much, too much will mess me up. And if I'm lacking, then I'll just be sad all the time that I want it. But let me get the right amount right down the middle. Now, without finishing the paragraph, I think some of us, if we were honest with ourselves, would say, I'd be willing to try this and see if I can have happiness just like this. But you know where Solomon's going to go with it. Verse 9, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. So what's that saying? His wisdom remained with him. How much pleasure did he get? Well, not too much. He got, he got the right amount. So this, this is... Perfect moderation is what we're laying on the table. Not, not too much, but enough. Enough to have lots of maximum happiness, but not so much he ends up like so many of the celebrities we follow on TV who end up incredibly wealthy and then in a rehab a few years later. So he doesn't. He doesn't go there. He takes the right amount. He keeps it down the center. He does all of this. His wisdom remained with him. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired... I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. So positive or negative spin so far? This is positive. He's done all this work, and he looks back on it and says, I'm, I enjoy doing a lot of that. 
You ever enjoyed doing anything in life? Have you ever built something? And I really enjoyed that. You know, when we remodeled our house a couple years ago, it was, you know, the blood, sweat, and some tears, you know, in that, that process and some budgeting and like some, some oh no's and some what now's and a lot of different things happening. But in the end, it was a very satisfying experience to be finished with a project that I had put my own labor into. And I know I could have bought it that way, paid for it to be done, but I'm, I'm confident I enjoyed it in a way that I wouldn't have enjoyed it if the labor hadn't been mine. So Solomon's getting at something real here. He's not just having this hypothetical scenario, you know, if you have too much pleasure, it's bad for you. That's not the angle he's taking here. He's taking it from a wise angle. What if we do pleasure by moderation? What if we have as much pleasure as possible without losing our minds? What if we do it right? Well, he said, well, there is some pleasure in that. There's some legitimate joy in putting the work in. You, you do your garden, you raise the fruit, you eat from your garden. It's satisfying. It's delightful to do this. So it's not all vanity yet, but see how quickly it turns. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold... All was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained, keyword, under the sun. Kind of like you go to the beach, you go swimming, you have a great time, but you can't take it home. You can't take that delight home. It was an experience. This is like Christmas, you know, there's that, there's almost more delight in opening presents than there's in playing with them. Anybody have that experience as a kid? It's like Christmas morning's great, Christmas lunchtime, it's like, oh, it's over. Got to wait a whole year to have that experience again. Because there's nothing gained. We say, well, I gained toys, but the experience is gone. It's fleeting. It's, it's past. So Solomon's saying, yeah, I had a good time yesterday. He's got good memories now. But it was like trying to pick up the water and carry it home from the beach. You're not going to get home with it. It's ultimately, a, it's vanity. It's a striving after the wind. Nothing is gained. And so he's kind of testing his heart with pleasure here. Now, for the sake of the bulletin, I've just simplified it to the one idea of possessions. But this is really the idea. Is none of these pursuits of pleasure satisfy the heart. So you can put possessions, whichever one works for you in the outline there. Possessions do not satisfy the heart. There may be a delight in the process. There may be a delight in the moment. But in the end, it's fleeting. You gain nothing long term. Except if you live that way, now you've put yourself in a position where the only way to be happy is to keep those cogs turning. And if you ever get off the track, you don't get the possessions in the right amount, the right quantities, it's over. So there's, there's nothing gained here. You just, you had some good time, sure. You didn't gain anything. You can't take it home. Right, that's just one part. So let's go to verse 12. So, so I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? What he's going to try now in this section is what if he just tries to live wisely? So he's considered living for possessions, enjoying pleasure. Now, what if I just try to live smartly? I mean, this is the one, our culture. If you're not hedonistic in the first section, then you're probably in this section. You know, I just want to do it right. I want to be smart about how I do it. This is probably more where I kind of fall and my natural leaning is, is I, I want to do something the right way. I'd rather be right than enjoy being right. Anybody been there? You know, 
You just, I, want, I was that kid in high school and most of college that you did not want to have a debate with. Because even if I realized I was wrong, didn't matter. I'd, I'd stick with it anyway. You know, <laughs> It's just like I was that kid. But that's what he's going to try. What if I just live smartly, live, we could call it pragmatically in our culture. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. What can, be, what, what can the man do after comes the king? Only what has been done before. Then I saw, so he's thinking through, then I saw there's more gain in wisdom than in folly. Interesting word choice. There was how much gain in the collection of possessions? He said, actually, there's no gain there. there was, you enjoyed some of the toil, but there was no gain. But here he says, well, I see by wisdom, living in wisdom, there's more gain there than there is in folly. There's more gain in light than in darkness. Actually, he's looking at the options here. You look at someone's life, and if they make a series of stupid decisions, does that impact their life in any way? Of course it does. Do you ever get frustrated with someone because in spite of your wise counsel, they make the stupid decision anyway for the third or fourth time? And you're like, well, don't, take my, don't listen to my advice if you're not going to take it. You're, you're, you're suffering for your own stupidity. That's what you're doing here. You're making the same error over and over again. Clearly, we can all look at the world and say making wise decisions is fruitful. There's some gain in that. Thinking wisely, living wisely, sure. But verse 14, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Now, what event are we talking about? This is death. Same event, doesn't matter how wise you are. We can say, well, the fool might die quicker, but the wise still dies. There's really no way around this. The wise and the fool suffer the same fate. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no remembrance Seeing that in the, sorry, there's no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool. I mean, how many of the kings of Jerusalem can you name? Two? Three? My nerds might be able to get a few more. But you got at least David and Solomon, if nothing else, because I just told you. Right? So, but his teaching makes sense. There's really only a very small number of people who ever get remembered in any meaningful way. You think, well, we know all these stories from history. We don't. We know very little. So this is Solomon's conclusion to that. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and striving after wind. So he looks at all this knowledge he acquired. He looks at this wise, maybe what we would call a pragmatic a view of life, and where did it get him? Nowhere. Doesn't extend life. We we have this saying in our culture, and I mean, for, I'd be honest, there's a lot of my heart that totally buys into this saying, is that knowledge is power. And you can see this, that knowledge is power. There's, there's a power in knowing things and knowing how to do things, and um, there's a lot of money is knowledge because you know where to use that hammer, and where to use that screwdriver, and that's why you get paid for your services. There's, there's a lot of power in knowledge, but there's not power over death. 
And that's the reality. Knowledge cannot undo the power of death in your outline. Knowledge cannot undo the power of death. I mean, Jesus affirms this in the New Testament. If you're anxious about your life, can you make your life longer? What's Jesus' answer in Matthew chapter 6? No. You can't extend life. You know, there's a big movement on YouTube. Um, I like to watch those YouTube science-y kind of programs. I'm, I mean, I like the stupid videos, too. Don't get me wrong. Good cat video. Get me laughing just like anybody else. But I like the science channels, and there's, there's one guy who's just obsessed with curing death. And you watch his channels, and you're like, I, I'm not going to lie. Part of me is like, we can do this. We can do this. I'm thinking, you know what? Technically, death is just a genetic problem. It's those the little, I, I always call them the shoelace ends of your DNA. What is Alleles or something? I don't know. Maybe somebody's got more science background. Those I'm talking about, they, they, they start to get thin, and then they break off. Then your DNA's not copying the right way. It's like, hey, this is a genetic problem we might get solved. He's even got this little parable of death and how we defeated it too late. And it's like, man, I'm like, we might do this. No, we're not. <laughs> because why is death here? That's part of the curse. Death is here until death is defeated. And we don't deal that blow. Christ deals that blow. doesn't matter what you do in life. You are not going to undo the power of death. But let's keep going. Let's, let's get to the end of the chapter. So that was, we did pleasure. We've done wisdom or knowledge. Now let's talk about toil in general. Verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. You ever felt like that? You come home from work, oh, I hate all my toil. I've had those jobs. I don't feel that way on this job, by the way. But uh, I've had those jobs, other, other jobs, different jobs. You know what I'm talking about. All right. <laughs> I hated all my toil, which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Now, why did he hate it? Because of who he had to leave it to. Now, let's just for a moment assume Solomon is the one who wrote this. So we have King David. This is the first you know, true king of the United Kingdom. I'm not, not the current United Kingdom, but the United Kingdom in Israel. And so we had, technically had Saul. He kind of doesn't count, kind of does count. It depends on how you look at it. Then we have David, the glorious king. And then David's son is who? Solomon. So Solomon comes after David, and he makes the empire great, extensive, amazing. Now, how many generations later is it when the empire or the, the kingdom splits into, into a north and a south and basically goes into civil wars and just falls into obscurity from that point forward. How many kings after Solomon does that begin? Do you know? His son. Like three days in. Can you imagine? Solomon's like the wisest guy who ever lived. He knows. You know what I'm talking about? He's looking at his children. He knows he's going to be king. And he's just going, I wasted my time. It's, it's over. Uh, I'm going to hand the kingdom off to an idiot. And now he says it kind of... He uses better tact than that, so let's just see what he says. So I hated all my toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Well, who knows? Solomon knows. (laughs) Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill 
must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is vanity and a great evil. You see what he's saying here. He's, he's built this, what we would say, the most successful version of Israel. They have an incredibly prosperous nation. The, the borders are the largest they ever were and ever would be. He's done it all. He's, he's done a great work, and he knows it's not going to last. He knows this. Going to his deathbed, he knows Rehoboam is going to mess it up. Now, I don't know if he knows it's only going to take him like three days to do it. But he knows it's coming. He can look at this and see. So let's see, where do we leave off? Uh, verse 23, for all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. You ever lost sleep over some project you were working on, over some relationship you were struggling with? It happens all the time. This is what he's saying. All our toil, all our, our work, all our progress... No guarantee that it's going to last. I'm, so when I was a kid, I loved building sandcastles. Anybody like doing sandcastles? It was always exciting to me, especially as I became a, an older kid, a teenager. When I went to the beach as a teenager, I didn't take a little plastic shovel. You know, I took tools. You know, I'm talking, I, I took a, a real spade shovel. I would take, you know, I would have a spray bottle. You know, if you don't have a spray bottle when you're building a sandcastle, you hadn't started yet. You know what I'm talking about. Anybody testify? Okay. So, I'm the weird guy. Okay. You just need to know. Uh, you go out there, you got to be prepared. You know, you, you, different sands, different wetness, does different things. You build this amazing sandcastle. And when you're young, that's all fun. Now as an adult, you try to get me to build a sandcastle, I'm, I'm like that cynical adult. And I'm like, no. Because what's going to happen? The kids are going to kick it. That's what's going to happen. Or somebody else's kids are going to kick it. And if none of the kids kick it, the wind and the waves are going to kick it. There ain't no hope for that sandcastle lasting. You know, they build those big fancy sandcastles and malls from time to time. You ever seen those? They're not still there, are they? Nope, short season. Can you imagine? Like, it's one thing to build a sculpture out of marble. That thing could hypothetically live for centuries, millennia even. I don't care how you build your sandcastle. I don't care what you spray it with. I don't care if you put it in a glass box. It ain't going to last. It's a sandcastle. So, consequently, the kids asked me to come out and build a sandcastle, and I'm like, okay. But can you enjoy building a sandcastle? Sure. You can enjoy building a sandcastle. You can enjoy taking it home. They're very different topics. So see how he wraps this up. Let's go to verse, did we make it to 24? Well, let me fill in the blank before we go there. Progress swings on a pendulum. Ever feel like that? You know what a pendulum is? You take a, take a string, attach it to something you know, steady, and you have a weighted rock or something. That's the pendulum, and you swing the pendulum. What does it do? You ever feel like that culturally? It's like it just, you know, it's red, and then it's going to be blue, and then it's going to be red again. And if you have this notion that one day it's going to stay red, come on, guys. <laughs> no, no, it, it's the pendulum swings, and that's what, that's what Solomon can see. There, there's just no, 
There's no lasting progress here. It's all going to swing from one way back to the other. All right, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person. And this is a foreshadow of the conclusion we'll get at the end of the book. So very positive statement here. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat. A part of me wants to put the period there. Because I like food. I do. I'm not going to deny that. Food is, I tell people all the time, my, my mouth and my body doesn't eat food. It's my soul does. It's a soul work going on. I'll never forget the time I ate Joyce's fudge at, at the steward's house. It just, oh, it's mama's fudge. You know, I was telling the guys at the Home of Grace that a few weeks ago. I started tearing up talking about that story. And they were like, that's so sweet. I was like, my mama's not even dead. It was just like, I don't know. I just loved her fudge. You know, it was good. I'm, I'm not going to do it now. Though. I just love food. You know, it's good. So, Right here, I have a verse, and there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. Now, note that these three things are not three different things. It's not he should eat. He should also drink and, by the way, find enjoyment. In, no, it's, it's one thing, really. We should find enjoyment in the toil. We want to find enjoyment in taking the sandcastle home. We want to find enjoyment in making sure everything lasts. But the reality is we need to find enjoyment in the work of doing it. We need to enjoy planting the garden, not just eating the food at the end. We need to enjoy pulling the weeds. We need to enjoy watering. We need to enjoy watching it grow. When I think about my children, I need to enjoy the stage they're in. Now, if I'm real, I don't really miss the the baby days, but enjoy the stage you're in. Enjoy where they are. Enjoy what's coming. Enjoy the progress you're making. Enjoy the toil itself as we go forward. Because this also, I saw, is from the hand of God. What's from the hand of God? The enjoyment is. This is what's key. So let's finish this thought up. It says, for apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment. So you can't have enjoyment in these things apart from Him. That's interesting. It says, For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, He has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give it to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. Now think about that, gathering and collecting. Have you ever had to do a task where you were gathering and collecting? We have a mulberry tree. And the mulberry tree, the first year the mulberry tree produced mulberries, that was the most exciting thing ever. This past year when it produced mulberries, it was like, <sighs> mulberries. I mean, I love them, don't get me wrong, they taste good. And I start gathering, but it, you know, it gets a little monotonous. And if you've been over there and helped with the mulberries, it gets a little monotonous because you only had to pick them up you put out the sheets, spread them up. Then you got to pick up all the little, you know, the, the moss and the pollen that gets in there because you don't want to mix it up with everything. My first batch, I didn't really work that hard. I just kind of made it, and I didn't want to just do all the extra work, get the pollen and the grit and the leaves out. And I made that mulberry juice, and I could just look at it and tell. I was like, nope, not even putting that in my mouth. It looked gritty. You ever had fruit juice that was gritty? No, you would not drink it on purpose, right? If you have had it, you're going to spit it out. like, no. You don't want to do that. The, the labor and the toil in that can be very frustrating. But see how Solomon's saying this. He's describing the sinner's lot as someone who gathers and collects 
but doesn't even get to enjoy it. You do the work, and you hand it off to somebody else to enjoy. At least if I do the work in my house, I get to eat the mulberry jelly when I'm finished. At least there's something. What he's saying here is that's the difference between the sinner and the one who pleases God. It's not whether or not you're actually collecting, because the righteous person here is also doing that work. It's also doing those vain things under the sun. The difference is the one who pleases God has also been giving, given the gift of delight in those things. So let's fill in the last part in the outline. Purpose and joy are gifts of God found in obedience to His leadership. Now, to wrap this up, I actually want to jump to the New Testament. Jesus is quoting um, the ideas, not, not word for word, but He's alluding to all of this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And my battery's dead, so everybody can still hear me. I'm just going to talk about it. All right, so in Matthew chapter 6, uh, many of you know this story. It comes from the um, Sermon on the Mount. And he says, therefore, I tell you not to be anxious about your life, whether you eat or what you will drink or your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Here's the worldview that we get from the New Testament. This is where Ecclesiastes was setting us up to go. He's going to conclude with saying, the conclusion of the matter is this. Just keep the Lord's commandments. This is the whole duty of man. The idea is if we want to have joy in life, we find it exclusively in the realm of obedience to our God and Savior. And we do His will. There's a joy in that. We accomplish His purposes. There's a joy in that. And we're not looking to all the ways we make sure the story works out. You know, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers build in vain. It's a biblical concept. We're working on the house God's building, and we just do the part God told us to do. It's not our obligation to make it work. It's our obligation to be faithful. And in that faithfulness, just doing what he says, each day there's a joy unspeakable. That's why we see things in Sermon on says Rejoice. Be glad for your reward in heaven. It's great. Well, the reward, you think about it, Jesus on that day is going to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. It's glory. He's going to speak a glorious statement over us. That is the joy. That is the pursuit 
that we should aim for. None of these other things, living for pleasure, even in moderation, living in wisdom, even when you recognize the difference between wisdom and folly, none of those things, the progress we think we're making, none of those things are ultimately what's going to give us the joy. It's just the simple fact of being obedient to Christ. But we think of that one guy he told to sell all his possessions, and we usually don't hear the part that comes next. Now, what do I need to do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, sell all that you have, give that to the poor. But what comes next? Follow me. The reality is, is whether you sell the stuff and give it to the poor or not, everyone's second half of that statement is the same. Come, follow me. Let's quit pursuing whatever vanity we have in life. Let's just come follow Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us as we move towards the end of the service. There's so many things going on in life, different scenarios we have. If you need prayer, if, if you want to talk, I'm going to make myself available after the service. I'm going to pray for us and we'll take up the offering. Um, there are so many ways we can respond to God's word. And I do encourage you as uh, we get ready to take up the offering. This is a very important act of worship for our church. And so take this time. Um, and when you give this gift, um, know that you're not giving because God needs your money. You're giving because you need to give to grow spiritually. And so let's experience this blessing together. I'm going to pray for us as we move into this time. And uh, then the, the men will come forward and pass the plate. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity we've had to study the word, to worship together, to spend some time in fellowship. God, I pray that you would bless our gathering. I pray that you would do a work through us and in our church, that we would be faithful and obedient to it, that we would... Experience the joy and the light of relation with Christ through obedience. So God, I pray that we would taste and see that you are good. That we could say like Solomon in the end that our whole duty in life forever is to just obey you. And from this will come our joy. God, we pray for the offering. Pray that you would bless, it, bless the giver in accordance with the gift. God, I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.